You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. All right. Good morning again, everyone. It's good to see all of your beautiful faces, smiling faces. That's a good start. Um, yeah, it's good to be with you guys again. I'm really excited uh, to be here, to be able to just have the privilege to um, talk about Jesus. Um, there's no greater privilege in the world than to do what I'm doing this morning. And so thank you all for, for coming and for uh, being attentive. Uh, this morning, as Pastor Riz says, we're continuing in uh, our series on the miracles of Jesus. I didn't count how many weeks it's been, but it's been over a month. I think time kind of just stands still, but also flies at the same time, so I haven't really kept track. Um, And so we're going to be doing that this morning. Uh, This morning we're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 26 through 39. And so if you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn there with me. If you have a phone, it's very helpful for you to engage in the text as we're reading, uh, to take ownership over the learning, so you're not just sitting up, sitting there, listening to somebody talk, and then after service you're like, what? What did we talk about? Uh, it's helpful to, to participate. And so uh, it's, uh, the story this morning is, uh, I've just titled this, this sermon, um, Jesus and the Demon-Possessed Man. Jesus and the Demon-Possessed Man. Although I should have titled it something more along the lines of Jesus and the man who was possessed by many demons, uh, because in Luke chapter 4, there was a man that Jesus delivered that was possessed by a demon, uh, but you'll see some more of those details in the story as we go along. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to first just read it, and uh, it's a little bit longer, but I chose Luke because Matthew's account is just too short. Uh, and so Luke's account has a few more fun details, uh, and so if you join me uh, as we read uh, this morning, and I'm going to be reading from the uh, ESV English Standard Version. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met a man from a city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had lived not in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for many a time. It had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. 
But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray. God, I'm just so thankful for the amazing gift of your word. God, we thank you for uh, your son, Jesus. God, and we're, uh, it's an amazing thing that we're invited to, to, to participate in the kingdom mission, Lord, that Jesus came to bring. God, and we, I just ask, Lord, that, that the words of my mouth, Lord, and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight this morning. God, would you lead this morning? Holy Spirit, would you have your way? Would you speak? Would you convict? Would you heal? Would you bring restoration uh, to those who need it this morning? Lord, we just want to make you, Jesus, famous. You're amazing. And uh, this story is just an amazing testimony of who you are and your goodness towards your people. We just pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, cool story, right? Kind of a bizarre story. I don't know, on your way to church, or if when you woke up this morning, or whatever you did yesterday, uh, fun activities you did during the weekend, if you thought, man, I can't wait to go to church to hear about somebody who is demon-possessed. Anybody? Show of hands. No. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, it's, a, it's a very bizarre story, and it's, very, it's a very stylized story, and that's why I picked it. Uh, I think it's a really um, interesting uh, way to tell this story that kind of heightens this epic showdown between Jesus and the forces of evil, and that's essentially what this story is all about. And I will tell you, and I should note right away, that this is not a lecture on demonology, if you want to know all about demons, Pastor Riz is in the back. I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's like, don't throw me out there. So it's, it's a bizarre story, but I'm not going to necessarily be focusing on the fact of, of Jesus' encounter with these demons and just the whole, the whole morning talk about, like, demons. The point of the story is about Jesus, right? The demons are, are an important aspect of it, but I want to talk about Jesus, and that's going to be the focus uh, this morning. And before we get back into the text, I want to give us just a little bit of background to the Gospel of Luke. If you guys are familiar with your New Testament, you know we have four Gospels. And uh, I have chosen specifically to teach out of the Gospel according to Luke. And Luke is unique. It's not the same as Matthew, Mark, or John. Luke uh, has a different purpose in writing than maybe some of the other Gospel writers. It's important to understand the, the context in which it was originally written so we can understand what it actually means for us today. And so the Gospel according to Luke uh, was actually written by Luke. And you're like, okay, well, I knew that because of the title, right? <laughs> Thanks a lot, David. Uh, so Luke was a—the uh, interesting thing about him was he was actually a co-worker and a companion of the Apostle Paul, that he actually ministered along with Paul, and you can read about that in the second half of the book of Acts. And Luke is writing this book to a church or probably a group of churches that were predominantly Gentiles— now, this is important because by Gentiles, essentially in the Bible, when you come across Gentiles, it just means everybody else who's not a Jew. And this is going to be important in the story because Luke is going to emphasize a story and an aspect about Jesus going to Gentiles. And so this is significant for our original readers, okay? So it's important for us to have this as our filter as we look at some of the details and try to understand exactly why Luke is telling the story 
in the way that he does. And I love this quote from Mark L. Strauss, who is a, um, uh, has written a lot of commentaries on the Gospels. In his book, One, uh, One Jesus, a survey of the Gospels, uh, Jesus and the Gospels, he says this, that Jesus is certainly the Jewish Messiah, but he is also the Savior of the whole world. His message of salvation is available to all who respond in faith, regardless of their past life, social status, or ethnicity. And I like this quote because it perfectly summarizes the main message of the Gospel of Luke. Every story that Luke chooses to include in every detail is somehow pointing to this reality. And this is important because our readers are Gentiles. They're not a part of the covenant people of God, the Jewish people. And so the question that they would have is, yeah, Jesus is great, and that's cool that he came to bring salvation, but is that salvation available to me? And if it is available to me, how do I actually receive that salvation? Do I have to be circumcised to be a part of this covenant family? And so Luke is highlighting that Jesus was the Savior of the whole world, that it doesn't matter your race, ethnicity, gender, or your social status, that you have the ability to participate in that message. And the way that you do is not by circumcision, but it's by your faith. And you're going to see this not only in this story, but if you were to go and read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see this theme over and over and over again. So kind of keep those two things in mind as we continue in the story. I said this, uh, I think it was like a month ago when I uh, taught on uh, a story in Matthew. But here's a few things that I want to keep us to keep in mind as we're reading. So what are we supposed to be looking for when we're reading the Gospels? What are we supposed to be looking for and paying attention to? And here's some of the most important things. The first thing you want to notice is what is the setting of the story? So this is the time and the place, right? We know that this is how you begin any story, not just a story in the Bible. Where and when does it take place? A key factor in this gospel and in the other gospels and in any good story are the people. The action is, is cool, but it's about the people. So notice the characters. Who are the main characters? Especially how are they described? And this story describes this man possessed by many demons in a really uh, interesting and detailed way. And that's going to be important for us. Another thing you want to notice is what is the problem? In essence, what is the miracle that Jesus is going to perform for this person? Uh, we saw last week that Jesus uh, performed a miracle of uh, calming the storm. That's the problem, right? Sometimes it's someone who's demon-possessed. Sometimes it's somebody who has a skin disease. So what is the problem? And then how does Jesus resolve it? How is Jesus the answer to the problem? How does he bring healing and restoration to the situation? Again, how do the characters respond? This is really important. And generally speaking, you're going to find a contrast between characters who respond positively and characters who respond negatively. And the author is going to set up these characters to serve as examples for you. Because the author is inviting you into the story. He's inviting you to participate in the story. And then at the end, you're left with the question is, how are you going to respond? And so keep that in mind. This is a, a, an important part of uh, Luke's gospel. Of course, we always want to ask the question is, what is this teaching about the identity and mission of Jesus? Who is Jesus? At the heart of all four Gospels is the singular question, who is Jesus? And then finally, the application. How am I supposed to respond to this? And that's really what the point of this morning is about. The point of this morning isn't necessarily just to talk about the historical context of this story, but it's to figure out how in the world does this apply to my life? What does this have to do with me? 
right? And so you're, we're talking about a man that's possessed by demons, and you're like, okay, that's weird, but I need something for my life, right? How am I supposed to respond? And we're going to get to that towards the end of our time together. So keep those things in mind. And essentially, all I'm going to be doing from here on out is pointing out those things in the text and asking a few questions that will lead us into application, okay? So that's kind of the direction that we're headed. So if you have your Bible again, look with me at Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. It says this, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And this is an important setting of the story. And there's two parts of it. The first part is that it's connecting us back to what we talked about last week. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all include this story and the story of Jesus calming the storm back to back. And so the two are very much connected. And last week we saw that at the end of the story, the question that the disciples ask about Jesus, right, who is Jesus, they ask this question. Who then is this that he commands even the winds and waters to obey him? They just saw Jesus perform this amazing miracle, and they're like, who in the world is this person? We've never seen anything like that. And that question is going to be transferred and carry over to our story today, because at the heart of this is, is who is Jesus? Yes, Jesus is someone who has authority and control over the forces of nature, but is Jesus also someone who has authority over the destructive forces of evil itself? And that's the, the question that we have. And again, from Mark Strauss in his, in his book, The Gospel of Luke, he says this, the story illustrates Jesus' authority over the forces of evil and provides one more part of the answer to the disciples' question, which is, who is Jesus? Joel Green in his gospel describes the story as an encounter of epic proportions. This is like the, the, I don't know, if you think about any sort of major movie scene where there's like a, you know, it's Luke versus Darth Vader, it's like good versus evil, or if you, if you watch like an MMA fight or a boxing match when it's like the two biggest, baddest fighters are about to do this showdown, that's essentially what Luke is trying to present here, except for it, it doesn't really play out that way necessarily. So that's kind of, that's the purpose of the story. It's showing, it's revealing something about who Jesus is, particularly that Jesus is someone who has authority over the destructive forces of evil. And so kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we go through. Now it's also interesting that Luke here notes, and you can show the, the picture of this map right here, because essentially the beginning parts of Jesus' ministry all take place in and around the Sea of Galilee. And the last story took place on the Sea of Galilee, right? The storm took place on that. And, and here Luke mentions something interesting. He says, he sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And you're like, okay, it's opposite. The other side of Galilee. But we need to know, why does Luke tell us that? Because it has, some very mu- it has a lot of significance to our understanding of this story. Because it's not just a geographical designation, but it's an ethnic one. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is crossing over into non-Jewish territory. This side of the lake, this city, uh, uh, which is called the Gerasea, is a predominantly Gentile city. And so again, our readers are Gentiles. This is significant. This is the first time Jesus is, is ministering to this people group. And for uh, most Jews during Jesus' day, they had a designation in their mind that God and his kingdom were, was, is in, was intended for Jewish people and not Gentiles. 
And so here we see Jesus bringing the message of salvation, the freedom, and the good news of deliverance to a Gentile person. And for the readers, this is significant. Because if it could happen to this man, how much more so could it happen to me? Right? And this is good news for someone like me who is not a Jewish person. This is my story. My story is that Jesus crossed boundaries in order to seek and to save the lost. That's me. And for most of us in this room, that's probably the case for you. And uh, it's interesting because in verse 27, it says this, when Jesus had stepped out onto land, there met a man from the city who had demons. Now notice it doesn't say demon, it says demons plural. Later on in verse 30, Jesus asked this man's name, and it says legion, for many demons had entered him. Legion was a, as a Latin term that described a position uh, of authority in the Roman uh, imperial guard that would oversee five to 6,000 men. So the point is that this man has a lot of demons. It's not just one demon, but it's, it's a lot of demons. And that's, again, uh, this portrayal, this characterization of this man. But notice what he goes on to say. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Those are really interesting details. Like, why is he telling us that he is wearing no clothes? Do you guys ever come across details like that in the Bible and just ask, like, why? In, in the Gospel of John, John says, Jesus said so many other things which aren't written in this. And then you kind of think about Luke, and you're like, could you have included something besides the fact that this man didn't wear clothes? Like, give me another story about Jesus, you know? <laughs> uh, but those, those details are really important. This is part of characterization. This is developing the, the impact and the power of the story. And you'll see that all of these things have something in particular in common. They all have something in common with one another. Continuing in verse 28, it says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Again, I want to stop there because this is interesting because Jesus is encountering someone who is literally possessed by the forces and the power of evil. And the, the, the voice that is speaking is evil itself. And notice what they say about Jesus. The demons actually understand who Jesus is. The question that the disciples raised previously is, who is this man? And then here you have this story where demons know exactly who Jesus is. That he is Jesus, son of the most high God. And the question is, is what are you going to do with me? And notice what he says, and I beg you, do not torment me. And Luke is going to include more details about this man. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So Jesus commands the unclean spirit to come out of the man, and then this is kind of the response that the demons have. And he mentions, For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bounds and be driven by the demons into the desert. And so the picture that's being described here is very um, disturbing. Imagine you're walking down the street and you encounter this person. How are you going to feel about yourself? Are you going to continue to walk down the street, or are you going to go to the other side? This is someone who is terrifying, someone who can't be bound by chains, someone who lives in the tomb, someone you, you would hear from the city, possibly on the hills, screaming and shouting during the night, being tormented by this evil one. And that's why he has to be isolated from his community, and he lives in the caves. And so this is the description of this man. 
Luke tells us that he had many demons. He had no clothes. He didn't live in a house and he lived in tombs. He fell down before Jesus and shouted. He was completely out of control. He was completely consumed by the destructive forces of evil. So the question then as we're reading is, what in the world is Jesus going to do? How is Jesus going to address and solve this problem? And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus had already healed someone who was demon-possessed. But there's no mention of how many demons. There's no mention that this person wasn't wearing clothes. There's no mention that this person lived in tombs and couldn't be bound. So here, it's a heightened sense of intensity. Yeah, I believe that Jesus can calm the storm, but this? Does Jesus have authority over this and this person and the evil that is being manifested in this person? That's the question. Who is Jesus? In verse 30, it says, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And so the abyss is this, uh, this it's not an actual geographical location, but it was a place in ancient Judaism where they believed that, uh, you know, evil spirits would go. And so they're saying, don't, don't put us there. Let us choose a different place to go. Which is, again, an interesting thing. You're like, what? Like, why is Jesus having a conversation with these evil beings? In verse 32, continuing, it says, Now a large herd of, herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. Now we're being introduced to a large herd of pigs. Now, if you're like me, I like, I like pigs. I like to eat them. Um, I'm not offended by their presence. But if you're a Jewish person, like Jesus is, this is the last place you should be. And there's a common theme that Luke is developing with this character that has to do with, uh, and Pastor Riz actually talked about this, this idea that Jewish people had in in the law of, of designating clean and unclean. And we see that this man had an unclean spirit. So check, this is somebody Jesus should be avoiding. He had no clothes. That's just weird. Those are the type of people, if you've ever encountered somebody with no clothes, you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, should I look? Should I, like, give you my clothes? I don't know what to do here. He didn't live in a house and he lived in tombs. Tombs were places where dead people were. That's unclean. You don't go to tombs. You don't associate around tombs. Jewish people would would cover caves and entrances to mark out, don't go there, otherwise you're going to become unclean. Pigs are unclean animals. Jewish people were to abstain from eating pigs. So you get the picture of the story. This is the person that is the farthest removed from Jesus and his kingdom. That's what you would be thinking. And so this story is demonstrating what I read in that quote from Mark Strauss, that this message of salvation is available to anyone. It does not matter what society uh, says about this person or that person and what um, designations that we have for people. There is no person that is too far removed from the power of God. 
don't know if you're like me, but every once in a while I see somebody or I hear of somebody or I read about somebody that I write off and I say, there is no way. That person is too hard-hearted. That person is too evil. That person is too uh, disturbed to ever experience Jesus like this. And that's a problem. That's a major problem. And so part of the, the, the issue that we need to address is that we need to see the truth that's being communicated about Jesus here and then actually ask ourselves, do I actually believe this? Because if you believe this, then you should change your behavior based off of it. It should change the way you think about your life and the life of those around you. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus has authority over the destructive forces of evil. Again, this is the main point that Luke is trying to make. Who is Jesus? Jesus is one who has authority over the uncontrollable, destructive forces of evil. Because look at what is being repeated throughout the story. Did you notice there was a word or a phrase being repeated three times? The demon-possessed man, the demons were begging Jesus. They were pleading with Jesus. Now, who, who pleads with you? Is it someone who is a superior or an inferior? It's an inferior. The demons recognize that they are inferior to who Jesus is, the Son of the Most High God. And they, they acknowledge that, and they actually are submitting themselves to that authority. Do you notice that? Hey, Jesus, don't send us here, but if you could, send us in here. They have no authority. They have no power over Jesus. And this is important because, you guys, exorcism in our minds uh, might conjure up some weird ideas. I think the, the original exorcism movie came out in like 1973. I've never seen it, but I think most of us think when we think about demons, we think of like modern films. Uh, exorcism uh, of demons, a demon possession and oppression was not unique in, in the gospel story. Uh, actually, Jewish people during that time and other uh, Hellenistic people um, also believed in this reality. And they would also address it. But the way that they would address it would be through incantations, through magic rituals. What do we see here? What do we see Jesus do here? Do, is there ever any indication that there is a struggle between Jesus and these demons? Is there any question in your mind who is in charge in this story? The answer is no. Jesus doesn't say, oh man, I know there's a lot of you, but if you could really please, like it would be awesome if you could, you know, just do me a solid. Just because like my disciples are here and I'm trying to make a point here, like just do me a solid and kind of, you know, go into the pigs and I'll leave and we'll call it a day. No. The point that the story is, is making is that Jesus has authority and there is no question about it. The forces of evil themselves recognize that. That's hugely significant for us and for Luke's original readers. That should very much inform us as followers of Jesus about who this person is. And we'll get into a little bit of the application in, in just a few minutes uh, when we kind of come to a conclusion. <clears throat> but that's kind of the first point that I think is interesting in this story, right? Who is Jesus? He's one who has authority over the forces of evil. 
And look what it says uh, in the second half of verse 32. So he gave them permission. Jesus says, sure, do what you want to do. They're looking for another host. They don't want to go into the abyss. And so they decide, oh, this herd of pigs is, is the answer. Again, it's a very bizarre story. It's very, it's very interesting. There's a lot of details that we don't have time to get into. But look at what it says in verse 33. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, it's important to recognize that Jesus doesn't kill the pigs. Jesus does not kill the pigs. Who kills the pigs? Okay, there you go. Someone's, yeah, thanks, Jackson. There you go. Okay. We're reading the same story, yeah. The, the, the demons are the ones who kill the pigs. So it's just important to notice that because some people read this story and they're like, man, that's kind of mean, Jesus killing a bunch of pigs. That's not actually what's happening here. And that's actually significant because you'll see later on the response of the people from the city. In verse 34, it says, when the herdmen saw what had happened, so they just saw their livelihood evaporate instantly in a very bizarre way. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. Again, you're talking about an area of predominantly Gentile people. And they don't know anything about Jesus at this point. They just probably have heard that there's this Jewish man living on the other side of the lake who's a, who's a great teacher and a prophet, but he's a Jewish guy. But he comes over here and he starts getting all up in our business. And for the demon-possessed man, it ends up being a great thing, right? He gets delivered, but for the herdsmen, their whole livelihood is lost. And so for them, they're, they're not necessarily okay with what Jesus is doing here. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, this is a really interesting detail. He mentions that this man, they find this man, right? They come out of the city, and they're like, hey, something exciting is happening up on the hillside. Let's all go out there and see it, right? And they find this man who they knew well. They couldn't even, they couldn't even keep him locked down in chains, and they find him sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, why does Luke mention that fact? Why doesn't he just say that the man was with Jesus? He's doing that because sitting at the feet of Jesus is not just a geographical location. It actually means something beyond that. If you were to look at Acts chapter 22, verse 3, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and look at what Paul says. He's describing himself, and he says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. At the feet was a designation and a submission of somebody following and submitting themselves to the teaching and the leadership of a rabbi. He was being trained by Gamaliel, who was the rabbi. And what a student would do, a disciple, a follower, a learner, is that they would sit at their feet and listen. Meaning that the person sitting is the one in authority, and the person at the feet is the one in submission. It's also a cool story, and later on in uh, Luke chapter 10, Luke includes this story of Mary and Martha, and we find Martha, one of the sisters, busy preparing the house for Jesus to come, doing the things that she knows she should do, exercising this amazing gift of hospitality. But her sister Mary, it says, and she had a sister Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listened to her teaching, to Jesus' teaching. 
Mary is submitting herself to the authority and the lordship of Jesus by sitting and listening. She's taking on the position of a disciple, as a learner, as a follower of Jesus. So Luke here is telling us the same thing, that this man is not just sitting, but he has come to recognize who Jesus is and who he is. And so the second point that I think is important is that salvation is available to all who respond in faith. In Luke's gospel, we see his emphasis on the least, the last, and the lost. This person fits that bill to a T. This person is the least person, the last person, and the most lost person you could ever imagine. And Jesus says, I came for that person. And notice how that person responded to what Jesus did. He experienced, he encountered the power of Jesus in his life, and he responded in faith by sitting and submitting himself to the authority of Jesus. This is the positive response that Luke wants to uh, exemplify in the story. This is the person that we want to uh, model our lives after. Salvation is available to all who respond in faith. This is important, again, for our readers of Luke who are Gentile people. How do I respond to Jesus? What should I do when I'm hearing about Jesus? Is respond to him in faith by submitting yourselves to his lordship and his authority over your lives. You sit at his feet. You're educated by Jesus. Luke is going to also, throughout his gospel, exemplify what it means to be a true disciple. And we see James even pick up on this, uh, the words of Jesus. And Jesus says, My brother and my mother are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You hear the word of God and you obey it. So we see that this man is sitting at the feet of Jesus, but also notice what Luke includes. He was clothed and in his right mind. And I love this, you guys, because what we're going to see in this story is that the third point is that Jesus' healing is comprehensive and complete. And this is why the details in the beginning are so important to our details now. It's because there's a major contrast of this man's relationship before Jesus and after Jesus. And just notice all of the things that the text mentions about this man before Jesus. He had many demons. He wore no clothes. He lived in tombs because he had no house. He fell down and he shouted and he was out of control. He has an amazing encounter with Jesus where Jesus brings healing and deliverance and he exercises authority over the, the manifest presence of evil in this man's life and look at how this man is restored. And this is intentional. The author intentionally includes these details to show us this. This man, after encountering Jesus, no longer has any demons. That's cool. He now has clothes. That's also a good thing, I think. And Jesus tells him later on to return home. So this man is actually being restored back to his community and his family. At this point, you guys, he was completely isolated from everybody else. And we see a total restoration, not just of the health of this person, physically, but socially as well. We see that he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's not out of control, following, following, following at Jesus and shouting. He's quietly sitting, listening. And Mark, uh, Luke says specifically, he was in his right mind. Where before he was completely 
outside of his mind. And here we see that when Jesus comes and you experience the power and authority of Jesus in your life, he comes and brings complete restoration and healing. Jesus' healing in the story is complete. And I love uh, this quote from Joel B. Green in his uh, commentary of the Gospel of Luke. He says this, His healing then is not only physical and cerebral, but religious, psychosocial, it's a hard word, and vocational. This man is restored to his community, and not just restored, but he's actually given a commission. This man is completely and holistically healed. And I love that about this story. I love that Luke includes those details so we can get this perspective. So the question that we should be asking ourselves is, if Jesus can heal you, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually, is there something in your life where you're like, I need the authority of Jesus to do that in my life? And I can imagine that each and every one of us has something we can think of either personally or in our family where you're like, I, there's nothing we can do. The situation is so out of control. The situation is so bad that we need the authority of Jesus to come in and to take care of it. And you guys, if it was true then, it's very much true today. That if Jesus can heal this man and restore this man then, then he can do it today. And if it's not the case that he can, then we are wasting our time. But that's why we gather here. That's why we're a community that follows Jesus. It's because we recognize who Jesus is. We recognize the authority of Jesus as the Son of the Most High God, who came to bring a message of salvation to us, that wants to not just grant us the the amazing gift of salvation, but actually wants to restore us because we live in a very fallen and broken world. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that about Jesus? And the the last point that we're going to look at is that number four is true discipleship is total submission to Jesus' authority. True discipleship is total submission to Jesus' authority. Because it ends, the story ends kind of bizarrely. Because look at what it says in verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So this is the negative example. They, they witnessed what Jesus did. But how did they respond to Jesus? They overwhelmingly rejected him. They said, sorry Jesus, not here, not now, not you. So there's a contrast of the man who is the positive example, who uh, recognizes and responds positively to Jesus, and then the rest of the people negatively respond. And so we don't want to be like those people, right? And we don't know why they responded in that way. Maybe it's because they, they were afraid of, of Jesus and the power that he exercised. Maybe it had to do with uh, many people's livelihoods just being uh, thrown down the drain, so to speak. And they're like, hey, man, this is not cool. And so we don't know why, but most people rejected Jesus. And that's not just the case here, but if you read all of the Gospels, the overwhelmingly amount of people, uh, they rejected Jesus. They couldn't, they couldn't quite come to grips with him. 
But it ends with, it says in, in, in the end of uh, verse 37 that Jesus got into the boat and returned. So we think that that's the end of the story. But Luke includes two final sentences that I think are key. It says, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. Okay, so here we have that again, the begging. The demons recognized the authority of Jesus and they begged and they pleaded with him. This man recognizes the authority of Jesus and he's pleading with Jesus, but he's pleading as a really good thing. What does he want to do? He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be one of the 12 disciples. He wants to follow Jesus. That seems like a good thing, right? But look at Jesus' response. Jesus says, uh, but Jesus sent him away saying in verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Again, this is the commission. This man is the first missionary in the gospel. We're familiar with like the great commission of Matthew where Jesus commissions the, uh, the apostles, the followers of Jesus to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's old news, man. You have this crazy Gentile guy who's been doing it for a while now. He's told to go home, and look at what it says. Proclaim throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This man became the first missionary. And what is he doing? What is he talking about? He's talking about what Jesus has just done for him. He's presenting good news about how this man has been healed and restored. But it's interesting because, again, backing up, that the point is that true discipleship is total submission to Jesus' authority. This man exemplifies what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to submit to his lordship as a disciple. He says, I want to do this, which is a good thing. Following Jesus is a good thing. And he's talking about physically following him, right? But Jesus says, nope, I want you to do this. And what does the man do? Does he object to Jesus? Does he cry about it? Does he come up with a, a nice formed argumentation of why he deserves to be a part of that? He hears God's word, he hears the words of Jesus, and he obeys. True discipleship, as taught and demonstrated in this, is total submission to Jesus' authority. This is the hardest thing for us to do. Have you ever thought about, is every aspect and every area of my life submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Have you ever actually examined your life? My encouragement for you would be to do that. Because <laughs> it's really easy to be like, I love Jesus and I go to reality and we're a community that follows Jesus. But sometimes Jesus tells us to do things we don't want to do. The question is, how are you going to respond? A true disciple submits every aspect of their life to the lordship and the leading and the authority of Jesus. And uh, as we conclude, uh, another quote. I'm a quote guy um, because these people can say things that I want to say just in a, I don't know, a cooler way. <clears throat> so again, Joel Green in his, in, his, in his commentary of the Gospel of Luke says this, The call to discipleship is fundamentally an invitation for persons to align themselves with Jesus and thus with God. This is the call that Jesus has on this man's life. This is the call that Jesus has on our life. It's first and foremost an invitation. You don't have to do it. It's an invitation to participate, to align yourself under the authority of Jesus. The focus is then removed from issues of inherited status, and a premium is placed on persons whose behaviors manifest their unmitigated embrace of the gracious God. Their behaviors. If you want to know what somebody believes, look at the way that they behave. 
I don't want to hear someone say, I love Jesus and I follow him with my whole life. That's cool. What I want to see is that your behaviors actually align up with that. That's how you know that you actually believe that. Right? And if I believe that Jesus has authority and that there is no place and no person and no force of nature or power of evil that has more authority than Jesus and I want to submit my life to him, therefore, if I do that, I should do what he asked me to do without questioning, without objecting. Right? That's what true discipleship looks like. That's what this story is teaching us. It's showing us the authority that Jesus has, not only over the, the forces of evil, but also the authority that he has over our lives as his followers. And so as we, as we come to an end, and as we kind of begin to transition into our second set of musical worship, uh, which is in a way designed for us to be able to take what we have heard, and to come before the Lord and to submit ourselves to his leading. I may have said something that you're like, I don't buy into that. That's totally cool. Write it off. But what I, what I just I would ask is you just listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then respond in whatever way that looks like. And what I've done is I've kind of just come up with a few application questions for us based off of some of the things that I've drawn out of the text. And these have to do with the truth, Right? And so the first thing that we looked at was the authority of Jesus. And so the question that I began to ask in my heart was this. Do I believe that Jesus has authority over all things? It's clearly demonstrated in the text, but do I actually believe that? Do I believe that he has the power to overcome life's most difficult circumstances? Is there some area of your life where you're like, God, you can do this there then, but you cannot do this. This is too big. This is too strong. This is too powerful. This is too evil. That's a false dichotomy, right? That's not what the text is teaching us. Do I put limits on how Jesus works in and through my life? I, can, I do that all the time. I do that all the time. I write people off all the time. If you go down to Waikiki late at night, or you go to Chinatown late at night, you're going to encounter some really difficult people. And it's really easy to, to see them and to cross over the other side of the road and say, there is no way that there is any hope for this person. That's not what the story is teaching us, right? The second thing is, do I believe that the message of salvation is available to anyone? Are there people in my life that I have written off? How can I be a part of sharing this message with those around me? So it's one thing to, to believe it, but it's another thing to respond. And this man is an example. Again, he's the first missionary. And Jesus says, go and tell people, proclaim to people all that God has done. And he does it. That's, the, that's what we, as the followers of Jesus, are commanded to do. It's not enough to just accept the message of salvation and keep it to ourselves. But we're called and we're commissioned by Jesus to go and to proclaim what Jesus has done. If you're sitting in this room and Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, he has redeemed you from the power of sin and darkness and death. He has done amazing things in you and for you. You should be telling people about that. You should be proclaiming of all that God has done and how he has delivered you from the things that your friends and your family are struggling with, that they can't find freedom, they can't find deliverance. And the answer is Jesus proclaimed to people all that God has done for you. And third, uh, not and third, thirdly, there's an and for, but I promise this is it. Do I believe that the message of salvation is available to anyone? Are there people in my life that I have written off? I already said that. Is there an area in my life that I need Jesus' healing? physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. 
Is there someone in my life that I need healing, and how can I respond to that today? So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And as we kind of uh, conclude our time together, again, you can take these questions and you can think through them. Maybe there's other things that you have in mind. Um, but I, I, did, I did feel prompted by the Lord as I was thinking about this this week to actually ask people specifically, if you feel like you need healing or you know someone who needs healing in your life, to turn to the person next to you or to find someone to actually pray with during this time. So I really, I really feel like the Lord wants to move and to minister in and through our lives this morning, specifically in this, in this area of healing and restoration. And so we're going to continue. Uh, there's communion on the right and the left. There's carpets down here if you want to uh, posture and position yourself like the man and sit literally at the feet of, of Jesus. Uh, you're free to do that. Uh, and so um, I'm just going to pray, and then we will continue. <clears throat> so Jesus, we just thank you so much for the gift of your word. Lord, we thank you, God, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, and if it was true for the man then, then it is true for us today. God, that there is no, there is nothing and no one and no, no thing that is too powerful that you cannot overcome, Lord. And so we invite you to speak to us. God, we invite you to minister to us. God, we invite you to have your way in our midst. God, we ask that the things that we have, the things that we are burdened with, Lord, the, the physical, the, the emotional, the mental, the spiritual healing that we need, God, would you come and would you minister to our hearts uh, today? We thank you, uh, Jesus, that you love us and that you died for us and you have amazing, wonderful plans in store for us as your people. In Jesus' name.